This is Melissa Hale Spencer, the editor of the Altamont Enterprise, and I'm just delighted to be here this morning with Joanna Bull. And there are so many parts of her, we're not going to get to all of them in half an hour, but she called our news office when she read that I had cancer, I had written about it in our newspaper, and she had things to offer. She actually was the reason Gilda's Club was founded, and we certainly want to get to discussing that. But there's so much to Joanna Bull that I'm just now discovering. One of the things she did this summer was give a sermon at the Presbyterian Church of Rensselaerville, which has a summer series where people from different faith traditions speak. And I'm going to read to you a sentence from her sermon. Precious little in our present world is not in need of healing. And she then spoke from a Buddhist perspective on this. And here's the list she started out with, and then we're going to get to hear about Joanna and Buddhism a little bit. The planet is facing quite possible destruction, infrastructures crumbling, greed rampant to benefit the few, with resultant growing inequality and poverty, with racism, terrible violence daily, and unchecked expressions of hatred rising in the social media and the political sphere like bilious stream from below. Not to mention illness, disease, human suffering, war, and wars that just keep on coming. So, (laughs) we (laughs) we need to know how Joanna navigates this world. Can you just tell us a little about yourself and how you came to Buddhism? Yes, I have to laugh, though, first, because we will get to Gilda. Gilda famously said when some guy was reciting all the problems that he had, Mr. Watson, you really sound like a real attractive guy. (laughs) So the world sounds like a real attractive place. And the point here, if we're looking at how... Buddhism, the what the Buddha taught, looks at all this stuff. It's basically that it could be so good because it basically is a miraculous, amazing, beautiful, luminous, cognizant, wonderful place. But we don't get it, and we mess it up all the time. So how did you come to follow Buddha? Just tell us a little about your life. Oh, gosh. Well, there I was in Woodstock, New York, hanging with Bob Dylan and the band (laughs) and staying at his manager's place, and I saw a ghost. Other people had seen a ghost. I'd never seen a ghost before, and I have seen a couple since, since I'd been open to it, but that's not my interest. It just piqued my curiosity. What is going on here that I don't understand and know about in my rational world? And I started to read, somebody said, read Zen. Started to read Zen. You can't read Zen without sitting still in what they call Zazen, sitting meditation. Started to have experiences. Started to understand a little bit about what's going on and how good it can be was going to go to Japan to a monastery when someone told me about the first Zen monastery outside of Asia, starting just two years ago, two two years before, in uh, California. So I went there, and that's how it started. So 
It's probably would take us a lifetime to understand Zen, but can you tell us kind of in a nutshell, you said a lot of it has to do with quiet meditation. It has, what characterizes Zen? Well, I think there are, uh, Buddhism, first of all, has lots of different, approach, different approaches, as does Christianity, different schools, different traditions. In Zen, uh, there are a couple of ways of doing things. Both of them involve the Zazen sitting that I mentioned, where you sit quietly. In one of them, you, which is the one that I followed, which is Soto Zen, you basically simply sit. You simply sit. And you let your thoughts come and go without attachment or aversion. Whatever they are, they just come and go, and you sit with it. And slowly, your mind settles. And then you can take that more settled mind into your everyday world. And that's what I've been trying to do. I also have studied uh, Tibetan Buddhism, which is uh, has a lot more complexity of practice, but takes you to the same place. The other part of Zen is working with what a lot of people have heard of as a koan, where you take something that doesn't make sense at all. The famous one is, what's the sound of one hand clapping? Mm-hmm. Uh, does someone hear a tree in the forest when it falls? And what's the, is the flag waving or is your mind waving? These kinds of things, and you sit with them. Um, I'm glad I didn't have to try to figure any out. <laughs> any of those out in my studies. <laughs> well, so do you do this every day? Is yes, it's a daily you practice. You know, Buddhism has been said by numbers of masters who teach it that it's not really an ism and it's not strictly speaking a theistic religion. It's more of a practice and it's useless to engage in a practice if you don't do it regularly, like learning how to play the piano. You have to practice every day. Well, learning how to calm your mind, clear your perception to the extent that you're able to, uh, requires practice. And so it's a daily practice that you try to bring once you get off your cushion that you've been sitting in, uh, uh, sitting on, or in the chair that I'm now sitting on at my age. (laughs) You try to bring that into your everyday life. Yeah, well, I was reading around just on studies that have been done, and I know this is probably the opposite of what you're trying to get to, but you know, Western civilization being what it is, we like to measure things and they put electrodes on the heads of monks as they're meditating and discovered their brain waves are actually different than most of ours, alpha instead of gamma, and the monks that have done it the longest actually have different structures in their brain. So It's true, it's true. Yeah. It's true, if you're changing your perception, if you're altering or purifying attempting to purify your perception, then your brain will be operating in a different way. It does sort of move the wires around. But it's also true that underneath it all, more than the brain, which functions as part of the body, is the mind. And the mind is what permeates just about everything, you know, whether, it's, whether it's what we're thinking or what we're seeing or what we're doing. Mind is always functioning. That's why Clearing up perception is a pretty important thing to to do if you want to know what's going on around you. Yeah. And not make trouble all the time. (laughs) (laughs) So um, one of the, this is a sort of a side path before we get to the Gilders Club, but one of the things the Altamont Enterprise readers will be familiar with your face. We had you, I looked up a ribbon cutting picture back in, let's see, it was 2007 when the, um, 
Institute opened in Bern. And if you could just tell us a little about your involvement in that, because our readers, I think, are familiar with it. It's since disbanded, but um, how did that come to be here in the Helderbergs? Well, I was up uh, in the capital region to do something for Gilda's Club. Mm -hmm. And the uh, head of the group of people, local uh, community people, were looking for a place to have a Gilda's Club. And that's one of the reasons why I was here, a place to to, uh, seed it. And while I was here, I saw, my gosh, you get two minutes out of Albany and there's farmland and beautiful homes and estates and farm, you know, beautiful areas. And I happened to be part of a Buddhist group that was looking for a retreat center. And I found out about the place in Bern. The head of the, the Gilda's Club, the in development, drove me past it. And when I was describing what we wanted, he almost lost control of his car. <laughs> It was to a T, exactly what we were looking for. Uh, It's a long story, but the short version of it is that for 10 years we did uh, hang on to it, develop it, uh, save it uh, from development during uh, that time. Uh, The way we developed it was to offer meditation courses and open up a a walk, a hike through the woods and things like that. But it wasn't financially sustainable. And honestly, I had knocked myself out with Gilda's Club. I wasn't ready to try to... I try to save this place. It it just looked like it had had its time. But then when uh, I heard that it was going to be developed in the development way, that it might turn into uh, somebody's horse farm or private (laughs) enterprise, so to speak... Um, I just decided that I, I I couldn't see that happen. The place was too precious. The you know the area is just so beautiful and unspoiled. Three hundred and fifty plus acres. Yeah, and their right views there. of the Catskills, oh, and it's fabulous. just kind of in a world of its own. Well, you're describing what I said: wonderful views yeah. and waterfalls and so on. So. I approached uh, Kevin and uh, this Kevin is Kevin Crozier, Crozier the supervisor of Burns. the Burns supervisor. Yeah, and um, I had also approached the Open Space Institute. I had a small committee, and we worked it out. And we went to them. They were very interested. They knew that property. They didn't want to see it developed into a commercial enterprise. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, with that in uh, in hand, we went to Kevin and said, "Look." You can buy this place for half price because that's the way open space works. Also, Mohawk Hudson worked with us. And so we were able to save the land. And Kevin very wisely brought in Dan McCoy. So the county money came in as well. There was some money to spare, it seemed, in Bern. And uh, it now belongs to the town of Bern. And I'm hoping that it will stay a rural-flavored Park that it won't turn into uh, the kind of wonderful place that Thatcher Park is, where the the trails are asphalted and stuff like that, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, and with a big visitor center, which I've visited recently, you know. But I'm hoping that it will also do some heritage farming. There are fields there that local people could use, and an education center. There could be all kinds of meetings, and we'd like to start the meditation thing again. Uh, we have actually done some exploratory stuff there so people can come and learn to meditate. Um, 
it's a wonderful recreation area, recreation, education, all kinds of stuff. Farming, I'd yeah. love to see farming. Well, here it seems like such a dichotomy to me, the stereotype, perhaps false, of Zen Buddha follower being so active in so many things, which brings us to Gilda's Club. So tell us how how you knew Gilda Radner and how how this idea evolved. Yes, and I will say that there is. It, I just want to say quickly that traditionally in in the East there had not been a lot of activity except for building of monasteries and hospitals and stuff like that. But when Buddhism came to the West, it came to uh, encounter Western activism. And so for me, the question was: Was I going to stay in the monastery where I actually spent a year and a half, or was I going to go out into the world and see? what I could do. I'm so, sorry, but we're not going to go to Gilda's Club quite yet, because I have to hear uh-oh. about a year and a half in the monastery. Oh, yeah, yeah. What was that like? How, how was your life and your mind different? Well, that was at a time when Buddhism was really just beginning to, to establish itself in a monastic setting. As I said, this was the first monastic uh, Zen monastery uh, outside of Asia that had just opened two years before I went there. And, this was in, and it followed, because it was... Sorry. Where in California? In uh, sort of due east of, uh, uh, of Big Sur, going up through Carmel Valley about 20 miles and then down into a deep valley where there's hot springs called Tassajara Zen Mountain Center. And is it still there? It's still there. It's operating beautifully. Uh, a great Zen master, Suzuki Roshi, uh, who wrote Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, which has been a, uh, had a lot of influence in people understanding Zen, uh, was running it at that time. Unfortunately, he didn't live long, and that year and a half was just about the duration of what remained of his life while I was there. But because it was making a transition to the West, it had a lot of the features of a traditional Zen Japanese monastery. People wore robes, and uh, we got up at 3.30 in the morning, no matter what the weather, and went to the Zendo to do our sitting zazen. We had lectures, and we worked in around the place. We farmed, we planted trees. We tried to help make it as beautiful a monastery as Suzuki Roshi knew it to be when he was in his monasteries in Japan. And it is, it's held together. It's gone through all kinds of permutations. Buddhism East meeting Buddhism West uh, comes across a whole lot of cultural changes. <laughs> you can yeah, imagine. Yeah, I can. And so it's, it's, it's often a bumpy road, but the basic practices are there. And students who are devoted uh, are there. I knew I did not want to spend the rest of my life wearing robes and getting up at 3.30 in the morning and learning Japanese, although I spent a couple of years trying to, you know. Uh, I knew that I wanted to be active in the world, and I just wasn't sure what it would be. But I happened upon some people who were starting the very first a social and emotional support community that was freestanding, not part of a hospital system in Los Angeles, in West Los Angeles. And I was brought in to be clinic director there. And so it was easy for me to begin to be part of that movement, which was just starting in the late 70s. 
Um, we I've watched it grow since then through several iterations, ending up at Gilda's Club for me, Gilda's yeah. Club, and its merger recently, so that it is part of what's called the Cancer Support Community. That's the generic term that I used for the movement, and it's been adopted as the name of the larger movement. That's a network of places where social and emotional support are provided free of charge. Now, when I say provided, I want to say that at Gilda's Club, the emphasis is on not professionals providing, giving, saying what should be done or, you know, is the best thing to do for people living with cancer. For me, the wonderful part of it is that people come together at the clubhouses, as we call it, as members, for absolutely free support, no charge whatsoever, and they are the experts. They have the expertise that comes from their direct experience. I know you have. You've learned so much. Yes, and I learned so much from the other people who had had cancer. It just kind of bowled me over the number of cancer survivors in my midst that I hadn't realized. And they came forward and shared very personal stories. But if we could just... because. Now it seems natural, but you were on the frontier of it. When in that era, I remember well, uh, because my grandmother um, died of breast cancer, people hardly spoke the word cancer. It was um, taboo in some ways. So tell us about the 1970s and this clinic and what, what the role was there and how you worked at it. Well, what was what was different about it was that it was not hospital connected. It wasn't an agency uh, supplying services, but it saw itself as a clinic for patients. And uh, the enlightened part of it was that the uh, people who were living with cancer, as I put it, uh, joined together for support groups and for education and for social events. And these three pieces remain the basis of the cancer support community services, as they're called now these days. I tried to avoid any agency speak, but it's hard to do when (laughs) when you want to raise money for things connected to medical uh, stuff. But, you know, you you talk about taboo. Um, It's true, and it is even so true now, too often, much too often. But you also point out, to me, the most important thing, again, that was happening and is still happening at Gilda's Club, and that is that people are there for one another. That's the point. You've learned so much from other people. They've Mm -hmm. been there for you. You are there for them. I call it giving and receiving. That's very Buddhistic, by the way. (laughs) Is it? So that's one of the principles you carried over into this. You give and you receive, and it's a constant process. And it's like you're not a good guy if you do it or a bad guy if you don't. If that's what's happening, you're lucky. And we've seen that. It's, It's still is hard for people to talk very often about uh, living with cancer, but it's a heck of a lot better than it ever, ever has been. In 2007, compared to 1970, uh, the National Institutes of Health brought out uh, an amazing uh, publication that pointed out what it is that helps people who are living with cancer and their families and their friends as well, because I was interested in including not just the person in treatment, but every family member, all the friends who wanted to be part of it. That seems like one of the great things about your concept of Gilda's Club, because it 
does turn out to affect your entire family and your friends and everybody around you. It's yeah, absolutely. And and what's happened is that the that publication pointed out that in the thirty years or so since we had started this and had moved on developing it further and further to Gilda's Club and mm-hmm. and uh, beyond, I hope um, that we had been doing all the right things. We had been making sure that people were in support groups that were meaningful and not necessarily in a hospital. I'm happy if they're there, if they're no place else, but where people don't drive past the hospital and have anticipatory nausea because that's where they had chemotherapy, you know. So that and networking groups where people can get together and share the specifics of breast cancer or prostate cancer or being a single parent and having cancer, things like this. Um, those basics were put in place at the very beginning. And then the educational aspects, how we respect the medical profession. Of course, they come in and give lectures so that people can learn what's the latest thing, what, 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 can, what can we rely on now, what's developing, and so on. Uh, workshops as well, learning how to cook when you don't really want to eat very much, stuff like that. Workshops that include meditation sessions, uh, relaxation, tai chi, uh, wonderful things like that, art workshops, dance, amazing things can happen. And uh, then um, the social events, which are absolutely wonderful, joke fests and rubber chicken if you give the best joke, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's get back to the very beginning of this, because, of course, Gilda Radner was a comedian. So how how did you know her, and how did this idea, because now it seems natural, you know, 30-plus years looking back, but it was must have been a very radical and amazing thought. <laughs> Where did it come from? So we'll start with how you knew Gilda Radner. And- well, I knew Gilda Radner because her chemotherapist was my oncologist when I was designated to have, diagnosed to have, um, chronic lymphocytic leukemia, zero stage. Zero stage means that it never developed into anything. I was very, very lucky. But I went through all the tests, the bone marrow tests and all that stuff, and I definitively was diagnosed with chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Gilda's chemotherapist, who was my oncologist, as I say, thought that she would benefit from learning the meditation techniques. I didn't want to use any special anesthetic or anything when I had my test. I wanted to see what it was, what people went through. And and he saw that I could relax and feel comfortable. Wait, so you went through bone marrow tests without anesthesia? Going into the hip with a nice big long needle to see. And actually, my oncologist said that some people don't. Uh, necessarily take uh, an anesthetic for that. It was my choice because I wanted to experience as much as I could as someone who had not had cancer, who was working with people with cancer, and I found that you could relax. And um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you could relax. You haven't your had so much girl. fun, huh? <laughs> well, yeah, I would love to learn how to relax like that. That's yeah. amazing. So you you put yourself into a meditative state. Yes, that's all. That's all. Yeah, and that is a state that 
we can call on no matter what the situation. And believe me, I do not claim to call on it 24-7. Yeah. But it's there. Oh, my. It's possible. So anyway, uh, he, uh, the on- my oncologist said, well, Gilda would really benefit from this. And so she became my patient. I was a marriage, family, child therapist, and uh, she became licensed in California, and she became my patient. And we worked together until her death, both on the East Coast and in California. So what was she like? Oh, well, you know what she I know what her public (laughs) persona is like. Her public persona... The the who she presented as breathing humor is who she was in her everyday life. <clears throat> that doesn't mean that she had any fun living with cancer, mm-hmm. although she did pull off a whole bunch of jokes while she was doing it, you know, yeah. while she was in treatment and while she and I were working together. Sometimes it was hard for me to keep her focused on what I thought we might benefit from by by uh, focusing in on on some of the issues before her because she did have an endless sense of humor and it was quite natural for her to see the insanity of life and laugh at it but having cancer is never easy that's ridiculous it's not uh, a walk in the park that's for sure so we worked hard together and um, I'm writing a memoir now that I'm going to call Delicious Ambiguity, which is a phrase that she quoted me as saying to her, look, we don't know what's going to happen, do we? We don't know the ending of things. We have to live with ambiguity. And it can be delicious, delicious ambiguity. Sometimes not knowing makes all kinds of things possible. Oh, yeah, no, I, I like that phrase. Uh-huh. That is one that it appears in this week's Enterprise story on you, and apparently it was tacked up in a, a uh, whose room was it? Oh, Mandy Patankin. Yeah, that was it, Patankin's room, and he used it for dying on stage as he opposed did. to it. Yeah, no, That's I remember being pregnant and not knowing if it was a boy or a girl, and you had to accept all the possibilities. So, yeah, there's a lot of deliciousness to ambiguity but with death I've never heard of it applied that way well but but that's because we don't see death at all as being anything natural we think it's unnatural whereas it's just as natural as birth you know and um it can only be delicious in the sense that we don't know the moment when it's going to arrive and so the question is how are you living your life how are you living it now that's delicious. There are endless delicious possibilities. That might mean that you're living with the pain, might mean you're living with confusion, might mean you're living with wonderful surprises. You know, it's all... It's, what a great philosophy. So does this tie into the idea, I mean, with the Buddhist way of thinking that your life isn't over with death, but you are reborn in another form? Or is this just part of... How, how you see life. Well, it's definitely my take on yeah. it. Uh, I can't say that I have any understanding or belief in reincarnation. I know that there are some uh, teachers of Buddhism who say, if you don't really understand reincarnation, you're not a real Buddhist. Well, I guess I'm not, because I don't understand it. Yeah. But I do understand that if you do know that life has its limits, it's not going to last forever. If you do know that death is real, and that it will come, then you do see the preciousness of life in a much more vivid and meaningful way. 
Whereas if we think, oh, well, this is going to go on forever. It doesn't matter if I have, you know, that next pizza. Oh, gee, that sounds good, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, so after Gilda Rander died, was the idea immediate to form this in her name? Or how, how did that evolve? Well, I had been talking to Gilda and to Jean Wilder, her husband, and to Mandy Patinkin, whom we met because uh, he had been using that phrase pinned his dressing room wall, and Joel Siegel, whose wife had died of cancer, uh, how they all fell together to approach me and say, look, you've had all these ideas, come to New York and let's do something using the ideas that you have. My ideas mostly took people who were coming to the place where I had been working after the initial Center for the Healing Arts, the second one was the wellness community. I worked there for a number of years and put together the basic program there. Um, the ideas that I had that were different were not looking at people as patients, but looking at them as human beings living with cancer, uh, whatever the outcome. Living with cancer, whatever the outcome. To bring in the family to bring in friends, to bring in children, to have a special program for children, um, to work with the family as a unit so that actually they could be uh, a wonderful vehicle for for everyone who's involved and touched living with cancer, whatever the outcome. To structure it so it's not just, oh, well, maybe I'll go in for a group if I feel like it, or maybe I'll stop by at that party or whatever, but to really look at it and say, with the uh, membership plan. What do I really want to do and what are my goals? What do I want to do before I die, whenever I die? I don't know when I'm going to die, but what do I want to do? So there were a lot of differences between the place that the idea of the cancer support community had come and where my thinking was when Jean and the others approached me and they encouraged me to come. I borrowed some money from a friend. I asked each of Jean and Joel for for, uh, a few thousand bucks and um, started pounding the pavements in New York, left uh, Los Angeles for New York. So that was a huge personal leap that you made. I mean, both geographically as well as financially and just redefining yourself and it worked (laughs) it did it did it works the program works Yeah. yeah so over the years since then have you had a role in it or are you um well i retired 15 years ago certainly over the years while after I developed the first one with the help of Jean and Joel and Mandy as my celebrity faces, I mean, we had amazing adventures with people that are unbelievable who came on board and wanted to see it happen. And during those years, people from all over the country approached us and said, we want this in our community. And so I spent a lot of time going there, advising them, helping them build boards, helping them understand the program, talking to people living with cancer so that they would understand what this was all about. Uh, Those were wonderful years. I enjoyed them thoroughly. Um, Fifteen years ago, I retired, and I remain as a consultant to uh, the Gilda's Clubs and the Cancer Support Community Network. I'm happy to consult at my age. I'm not so ready to climb on these planes the way they are these days. And What is your age, if I may ask? Oh, I, you know, when you're eight years old, you say, I'm 
Eight and a half. <laughs> well, now I can say I'm 80 and a half. Oh, wow. Well, you're a very youthful 80. That's amazing. I don't, honestly, I don't know the thing about age, how it is. I don't hesitate at all. I asked somebody the other day, a guy, what his age was. He looked at me aghast. I said, I guess you're not supposed to ask men how old they are. And he said, he said he was 76. I said, oh, spring chicken. (laughs) I just love your humor. I'm so sorry. Our time has gone so fast. This has been fascinating. Is there any one essential thing that you wished we had talked about that we didn't, that we can still squeeze in? Well, I think you said it yourself, you know, to not be alone when cancer happens, to make sure that you get support. And I think the only other thing I would emphasize is that so often people who are called caregivers um, are themselves burdened, and it's important that they get support too. I don't like that term, caregiver, because it means one person's up and one person's down. And you Uh, like this exchange, this back and forth. Yes, we're all in it together. And so... People who are related to or or the leading person who's supporting, mostly it's a family member, sometimes it's a caring neighbor uh, or a colleague, uh, so that they get support too. I, I, I think that that emphasis is important. Very often people will say, well, I have my family and I have my friends close by, I don't need any other help. But they don't know how burdened the family and friends can be if they're not getting support too. It's happening to everybody. We are definitely, here's your last thought on Buddhism, you know, we are definitely all in this soup together. Every single one of us connected, connected in so many ways. Illness connects us dramatically and directly, but everything else is connecting us too. I love that for a closing closing thought, and I am glad to be in the soup with you. Thank you, (laughs) Joanna Ball. Thank you, Melissa.